So if you've been here, you know we've been walking through the book of Exodus together, the, the story of the people of Israel and their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Uh, the Lord has rescued Israel, has brought them out, and he is taking them to a land that he's promised to them, but on the way, uh, he meets with them at Mount Sinai to give them his law, uh, to give them instructions on how they are to live as his people in light of his redemption. Uh, the law of God is meant to give shape uh, to their lives in the land as God's people. And so today, we come to the, the final of the Ten Commandments. We'll see you next week, Lord willing. There's lots more rules and laws to come, but these Ten Commandments serve as sort of a, a, a capstone, an encapsulation of God's will. And so we read there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So as we consider this text, this verse this morning, I want to notice three things together. First, let's see together the, the location of our coveting. Second, the nature of our coveting. And then finally, the solution, God's solution uh, to our coveting. So as we think about this 10th commandment, this prohibition against coveting all sorts of things, uh, let's start by looking at the location of our coveting. And here, I want to see how this final commandment, this 10th commandment, on, on the face of it, seems to be a bit different than the, the nine that precede it. Uh, and that is, whereas all the other nine commandments uh, regulate in some way a, a visible and external action, this 10th commandment deals strictly with a matter of our heart. So if you follow someone around all day, you can observe whether or not they are breaking the other commandments. You can see whether they make a carved image for worship. You can see if they steal, if they commit murder, if they commit adultery. With enough information, you could even observe when they're telling a lie. But covetousness is not exactly like that. It's a sin that is buried deep in our hearts. And that means that it's a sin that it's easy to hide and deny and ignore. And so once again, right at the outset, we are reminded of the internality of God's law. That is to say, God's law is not simply concerned with our external behavior, but also, and we could say especially, with our thoughts, our desires, our, our feelings, the things that our hearts love. That's really been one of our guiding principles as we've gone through these Ten Commandments, that the law of God speaks to our hands, but also to our hearts. It regulates what we do, but also what we think and feel. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of that and to establish that clearly at the outset, because this is a good way to, to guard ourselves against two really bad ways of responding to the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first bad way of responding to the Ten Commandments is obvious, I think, just to ignore it, ignore them, right? Simply to disobey God's law. Honestly, this is what the people of Israel did quite often. So, Lord willing, when we get to the middle of chapter 24 in the book of Exodus, Moses will finally stop speaking God's law to the people, and they respond by saying together, all that the Lord has set, spoken, we will do. We they say, will be obedient. And then Moses talks some more, 
And the next thing you know, in chapter 32, they're building a golden calf. Right? The, the people of Israel just simply and often disobeyed God's law. And we're tempted to do that as well. When we lie, when we cheat, when we disrespect our parents, when we commit adultery, we show disregard for what God's told us to do. But there's a second and more subtle and perhaps more respectable and therefore almost more dangerous way to respond badly to God's commands. And that is the way of the hypocrite. See, the hypocrite is content to conform his or her outward behavior to the demands of God's law. And in so doing, they appear to be righteous. But on the inside, the hypocrite is anything but concerned with what God wants. Right? This was the criticism that Jesus leveled against the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of his day. On the outside, they were strict they were religious, they were moral, they appeared to give uh, quite a bit of consideration to what God wanted from them. But on the inside, they were a mess. So in Matthew 23, Jesus skewers them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." This is why, we, again, as we've been going through the Ten Commandments, we keep looking at Jesus' sort of gloss on them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus keeps pressing the law of God beyond just our external behaviors and deep down to the level of our hearts. Jesus says it's not enough to physically refrain from murdering someone. God's law actually is concerned about the murderous anger that resides within us. It's not enough to refrain from the physical act of adultery. God's law is concerned about the lust of your heart. And so what we see here in this 10th commandment in Exodus 20 verse 17 is that Jesus didn't invent this idea. This wasn't some radical innovation that Jesus brought to the people of Israel. This idea that God's law is concerned with, with your heart. Right? The, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't represent some massive new understanding of God's will. Right, the 10th commandment shows us it's always been this way. God has always cared about the hearts of his people. And so here he, he ends the 10 commandments by, by telling them not to covet. Right, this is why the Old Testament prophets kept beating the drum over and over again. Look, what does God want from you? It turns out it's not just sacrifice. The prophets would tell the people of Israel, it's not enough just to go through the motions of sort of religious duty. No, what God wants is mercy in your heart. God wants you to be transformed by love. So this 10th commandment reminds us to be on guard against hypocrisy. It reminds us that God cares about what's going on, not just with our hands, but in our hearts. And I think, brothers and sisters, we, we ought to acknowledge that, that this kind of hypocrisy is a particular temptation for religious people. Right? I think it's not too hard if you want it enough, if you're disciplined, to clean up your external behavior. And let's be honest, if you, if you dress nicely, you show up on time, you seem like you belong, you go through the motions, you have a friendly smile on your face, 
most people are going to assume you're fine. They're going to think well of you. And that sort of veneer of godliness can actually serve to shield you and to even provide sort of psychological cover for a world of sin in your heart. The bitterness, greed, perversions of all kinds. And because other people can't see it, it's actually easy to pretend like it doesn't exist. You can actually even begin to deceive yourself into thinking that you are who other people think you are. And so, brothers and sisters, let's commit ourselves to the kind of honesty that Mike talked about in his sermon on the Ninth Commandment last week. Uh, Let's allow God's word to confront us and challenge us all the way to the level of our hearts, to our deepest and most innermost parts of our being. Our God is the one who sees everything done in secret. The book of Hebrews says that he judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so now is the time to pursue truth in the inward being, as David puts it in Psalm 51. Now is the time to repent of secret sin, to go to war against sinful thoughts and attitudes. The 10th commandment reminds us God is concerned about what's going on in our hearts. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I wonder what you make of this idea. That what God wants from people is more than just an external conformity to what is right. Maybe it's tempting to enjoy the idea of religious people being skewered for their hypocrisy. But I wonder if you live up to your own standards. I wonder if you pay lip service to the ideas of love and tolerance and acceptance, but actually judge and and hate and despise all kinds of people in your heart. I wonder if you do things in private that you would be ashamed for others to know about, perhaps even things that are inconsistent with your values. My friend, realize that God sees the true you. The goal here is for us all to see that we're actually, in fact, not good. That even the most moral and upright and disciplined of us can't claim to be truly righteous. The Tenth Commandment comes along and presses on us the internality of God's law and calls us to obey Him with not just our hands but our hearts as well. And the point isn't just to feel badly. Rather, it's to get a clear picture of our disease in the hopes that we might be able to find a cure for it. Let me remind you about two men that we read about in the New Testament. Two very upright, moral Jewish men. The first was a man who came up to Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and asked him what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And that's a great question. And Jesus actually answers this man in terms of the Ten Commandments. So so we read there in Mark chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says this to him. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Notice one of the commands Jesus leaves out is the 10th commandment. And he said to him, so this is the man responding to Jesus, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, as far as anyone could tell, this guy had done everything right. right? He can say to Jesus, look, I've kept all the laws from day one. And Jesus actually doesn't even dispute it. 
Instead, in love, he subtly presses on him that his heart was controlled by the love of money, that he was, in fact, a coveter, that that he could not part with his possessions, even if it meant eternal life, even if it meant what Jesus calls treasure in heaven. The second man is the Apostle Paul. Listen to his description of the effect that the 10th commandment had on him in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Paul writes this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. There's a lot we could say about what Paul says there, but for our purposes, just notice that the the commandment against coveting produced in him all sorts of coveting. Paul had been a seemingly blameless Jew, never murdering, never stealing, respecting his parents. But he says the 10th commandment blew him up. It showed him that the law of God is internal. And when that command came into contact with the sin in his heart, the, res- the results were-, were devastating to his self-perception. He-, he realized that he was not good enough, that he was not, in fact, a law keeper. So Martin Luther, the German reformer, wrote this. He said, this last commandment is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they've not offended against the preceding commandments. So brothers and sisters, that's the first thing I want us to see this morning, the location of our coveting. It's a sin that's lodged in our hearts. It's a disease that goes all the way to the level of our souls. And that means that we're going to need a solution that penetrates just as deep. Let's look at our second point then, the nature of our coveting. Now let's think about exactly what coveting is and why it's a problem. Again, we read there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Okay, so obviously we're, we're not meant to covet, uh, but what does that actually mean? What, what exactly is it that's being prohibited here? Well, to, to covet something is to, to long for it, to crave it, to, to yearn for it, right? Coveting goes beyond just normal desire. It's an inordinate desire. It's, it's desire gone haywire. Uh, it's, a, it's an insatiable, uh, all-consuming kind of desire. Uh, the noun form of the word that's translated here out of the Hebrew as coveting, it's often translated as, as greed, right? So if... if If greed is the noun, coveting is the verb, right? It's having a greedy heart for something that you want, right? And this commandment here, as as the Lord speaks it through Moses in verse 17, is is comprehensive, right? He's, He's forbidding all sorts of coveting. There are really no loopholes. There's a list of things that that we're not to covet. Our neighbor's house, his wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, Right, maybe we would contextualize this into our neighbor's car, right? Though I think if your neighbor does have a donkey, you shouldn't covet it. 
But the Lord doesn't end there, right? He ends by saying, or anything that is your neighbor's. He knows our hearts, right? He knows we'd be like, well, I didn't covet any of those things, right? So he says, anything that belongs to your neighbor, right? The whole, the whole list points to being comprehensive, right? It lists seven different things, uh, seven being a symbol for completeness in the Israelite world, right? That, that last summary prohibition against coveting anything that belongs to your neighbor. And it's important to notice the context in which this coveting occurs. It's in relationship between you and your neighbor, you and the other people around you. In that sense, coveting really is a sin against someone else. Right? We, don't, we don't covet in a vacuum. We want specifically what someone else has. We believe deep down we deserve that good thing just as much as they do, if not more. And so we're consumed by a desire to have it. I think it's the, the nature of, of the human heart that we are always comparing ourselves to other people, always checking them out. Right, what kind of car did they pull up in? Right, what is she wearing? Look how thin she is. What kind of work does he do? Right, we, we covet what other people have. We covet what other people have accomplished. We covet what other people have received. Right, why, do, why do they get all of that while I'm stuck with this? Right, we've noticed that the beginning of the Ten Commandments seem to focus on our love for God. The second half seems to focus on our, our love for our fellow human beings. Right, Jesus said that was really the whole law. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Right, and so this Tenth Commandment is really a good summary of it all. Covetousness is a sin against God. Right, it is a, a sin against his provision. It's a complaint against his generosity. It, it's an accusation. Right? If I were running the universe, I would have distributed things a bit differently. Right? I know better than God does. But covetousness is also a sin against your neighbor. It's a desire to have what's theirs. It's the, it's the prideful belief that you deserve what they have. So brothers and sisters, how are you tempted to covetousness? Where are you nursing a longing for things that aren't yours? I'm just going to go ahead and, I'm just going to go ahead and say everybody in this room struggles or ought to struggle with covetousness. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how. And so, and so think, are you consumed with a desire for things you don't have? Maybe it's a desire for, for material possessions. I think that's the way this sin often manifests itself. Right in Exodus 20, verse 17, the things that are listed there are mostly material possessions, property, servants, animals, houses. Right? You may not, again, have a, a hankering for oxen or donkeys. But do you covet designer clothes, uh, the latest technology, do you fantasize about a bigger house or a new car or a bigger TV? Right, and it's not just that we consume. It's that we're never satisfied, that we always want more. The thing that we, that we acquired that we thought would satisfy us, it turns out, in a matter of time, isn't enough anymore. The, the products that we consume in the hopes that they'll make us happy, right, in the hopes that they'll make our lives seem more glamorous or ordered or peaceful, uh, for a day or two, for a week or two, for a year or two, they might. But the glory fades, the, the thrill wears off, the new iPhone comes out, and we're back online 
to reload. My brothers and sisters, we often ask material possessions to, to bear a weight that they simply can't bear. We look to them to fill up our, our boredom, our loneliness, our insecurity. And so we're always disappointed, always having to come back for more. Right? Covetousness is going to look different in our world than it did for the Israelites some thousands of years ago. And so maybe just ask yourself. Ask yourself about your spending habits. Do you buy things on credit because you don't have the money for them? Right? Are you assuming that you should have that vacation, you should have that house, you should have that car, you should have those clothes, you should have those possessions, even though you don't have the money to pay for them? Right? Are you longing for a lifestyle that you actually can't afford? And so you're spending money you don't even have. Do you find yourself often daydreaming about what's next? The bigger house, the renovation to the kitchen, do you engage in retail therapy, buying things to make yourself feel better? Are you, are you always planning that next purchase in order to keep the boredom of day-to-day -day life at bay? And do you find yourself with, honestly, a ton of stuff, but still jealous of what other people have? I think everything about life in Northern Virginia is calibrated to stoke that kind of discontentment, that kind of covetous longing in us. Because you're never going to be the person who has the most and the best of everything. You're never going to be the person with the best body, the best car, the best house, and the most successful kids. There's always going to be some arena in which someone appears to have more or better than you. And so the question is, can you live happily in that world? Or will you be consumed with a desire for what others have? Now to be clear, desire itself is not wrong. The book of Proverbs commends people who work hard in order to, to provide for their families and to have a, a better material lot in life. Right? In his earthly ministry, Jesus met with lots of people who earnestly desired all kinds of things. They wanted to be healed, and he honored that desire. Right? He dealt with hungry people who wanted food, and he fed them. Right? He didn't say, look, your desire here is the problem. The Apostle Paul says that he earnestly desired the salvation of his kinsmen. He told the Corinthians to earnestly desire the best spiritual gifts. In another letter he says, look, anyone who desires to be an elder in the church is desiring a good thing. Right? Wanting is not the problem. So we're not, we're not teaching Buddhism here. Right? That, that salvation is found in the annihilation of desire. Right? It's also worth mentioning the Bible talks a lot about possessions. But it never says that it's wrong to have things. Right? Unsurprisingly, when the Bible talks about possessions, it speaks not to how many things we own, but to the hold that they have on our heart. Right? It asks questions about, about how badly we need possessions, whether we're looking to them to make us happy in life, there, if there's certain things we have to have in order to be okay, if we're, if we're not content, should the Lord take them away? Right? If, we, if we pursue material possessions rather than caring for one another in the church or investing in the spread of the gospel, right? those are the kinds of things that the, the Bible is asking us uh, about our possessions. And so we don't want to reduce our conception of covetousness uh, to sort of a, an ascetic or, or Buddhist approach to life. Instead, we want to ask, uh, are our lives characterized by a, a discontent? 
a sort of burning desire to constantly have what others have. And we shouldn't reduce our conception of covetousness to merely material possessions. Exodus 20, 17 mentions coveting your neighbor's wife. So there's a, a sexual component in this sin. You can covet someone else's attributes, their intelligence, their abilities, their personality, their health, their appearance. Right? You can covet someone else's life, right? the, the, the way their spouse treats them, their children, their, their singleness, their marriage. Right? We, we want to understand the Tenth Commandment to forbid all sorts of inordinate desires like that. But we should stop and ask why coveting's such a big deal. Like, why, is it, why does it make the list of the sort of ten big sins, right? After all, it seems like it's, it's certainly not seemly, but relatively minor, right? Given the, the choice between being a victim of coveting and a victim of murder, right, we would all choose coveting every day. But the Bible is actually clear that, that coveting is, in fact, a big deal. Let me give you a few reasons First, the Bible describes it as something like a gateway sin, right? Coveting leads us down the path to all sorts of other sins. So we read in the book of James that our, our inordinate desires are like seeds that, that sprout up and bloom into deadly sin. James uh, tells us in chapter 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The desire that James is talking about here is, is covetousness. Right? When it comes to fruition, it gives birth to sinful actions. And those actions, James says, lead us on a path to death. Right? You can understand how that would be. Right? If you covet your neighbor's reciprocating saw and you see it laying out unattended, right? your, your heart might convince you to steal it. Right? That, that theft would begin in a covetous heart. Right? You see this at work in the story that uh, we read earlier about, about Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. Right? Here, here a powerful king has his, head, his heart set on someone else's vineyard. Right? He didn't need it, but he decided that he couldn't live without it. And so what was the end result? Well, that, that covetous desire led, led to murder. It led to theft. It led to false witness. It led ultimately to the violent death of Ahab and Jezebel. Right? An inordinate desire for someone else's possessions led to all sorts of other sins. That covetousness is a gateway sin. Right? It doesn't take a lot of creativity to imagine all the different ways that our, our desires lead us to, to sins like theft hatred, envy, deceit, and adultery. The second, we also see that covetousness is dangerous because it amounts to worshiping other gods. Right? Desire, covetousness, is connected to worship. Right? When we want something so badly that we obsess about it, that we sin to get it, then that thing has displaced the Lord from his position in our lives, right? That thing has become, for that time, our functional God, and we have become its worshiper. Right? There's also, in our coveting, an element of self-worship, right? When you make decisions, when, you're, when your life is driven based on the fact that you are desperate for, for something you don't have, 
right? Whether, whether it's a spouse or, or possessions. When you, when you gossip about the, the person uh, in the office who got the promotion that you wanted so badly, right? You are acting like you're the center of the universe, as if things and people exist primarily for your pleasure, right? You're, you're acting like the, the world, for some reason, didn't get the memo, that all of its goods and services and inhabitants and opportunities are to be directed to you for your pleasure and your benefit. Right? You become the God of the universe in your own mind. That's why Paul writes in Colossians that Mike read for us earlier, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then again, when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, in in Ephesians chapter 5, in a sort of parallel part of that letter, he says this. He says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Covetousness is a form of idolatry. When you covet, you turn that thing that you want into an object of worship and devotion. In that way, this 10th commandment is a fitting end uh, to this list. It's a, it's a bookend that, that seems to serve well and to complement the first commandment, which prohibits the worship of other gods. Right, I think on the first glance, the 10th commandment seems like a bit of a letdown. Right, we start the 10 commandments with the glory of God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right? We have the glory of God and the redemption of his people. His first commandment, he says, have no other gods. I'm the only God worthy of your worship. And we go through these different commandments and we end up with something like, don't look at the donkey. Right? And it feels like maybe it's a bit of a, a letdown. But I think when you see that the heart of covetousness is really all about worship, then you understand why it's here. We also see that covetousness is a serious sin because it leads to misery now and finally to spiritual death. Just briefly, but think about it. Do you you want to be a covetous person? Like, do you you feel like life is well-lived when you're constantly sort of craving things that you don't have? Do Do you want your children to have a life where they're always clutching and striving for other people's things? Right, isn't it obvious that it's better to live a contented and internally peaceful life? Right, we see yet again that when, when God commands us to do something, he does it for our own benefit. Right, he's, he's not taking away the cookies. He's taking away the rat poison. Right, God's saying, don't, don't live this way. But, but not only that, in, in that passage from Ephesians, Ephesians 5 I read just a moment ago, we see that Paul says the covetous have no part in the inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Right? In Mark chapter 7, Jesus includes greed or, or covetousness among things like murder, theft, and adultery that make us spiritually unclean. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists the greedy amongst the, the drunkards and the immoral and the, and the slanderers, the swindlers. Right? He says these are all the kinds of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, no covetous person will be granted admission to eternal life. Right? The new world that God is making is a place free from corruption. And so covetousness will not be permitted in. 
The Puritan Thomas Watson paints this picture for us. He says, as a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat, so a covetous man takes in so much gold to increase his estate that he drowns himself in perdition. Covetousness can sink us down into hell as rapidly as any of the other so-called major sins. And since it's more subtle, because it's internal, it may be all the more dangerous. So what hope do covetous people like you and me have? That brings us to our third point for this morning, and that is the solution to our covetousness. You see, God in his mercy didn't leave us mired in our sin. He didn't look down on covetous people like you and me, wasting our lives, longing for things that we can't have, or if we can have them, will never satisfy us. He didn't look down on us and abandon us to this soul-shriveling, spiritual death-inducing mania. But instead, in his love, he sent his son to deliver us from both the penalty of covetousness and also from the power of covetousness. Jesus came to give us eternal life, to to finally and permanently satisfy every desire, every longing that can't be satisfied in this life. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh, and he lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. His heart was not controlled by, by a lust for things that he did not have. His soul was never weighed down by discontent. But he didn't come to enjoy the fruits of his obedience. He didn't come to enjoy the reward of his goodness, but rather to take the punishment for our sin and our failure. Jesus came to bear the the shame and the guilt that we ought to bear for all the ways that we've been covetous. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God against all of the sin of all of his people. He took our sentence He he stood as our substitute. He sacrificed himself in our place. Then he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And so now God offers salvation through Christ for anyone who will turn from their covetousness and put their trust in him. That's how Jesus saves us from the penalty that we deserve for all the ways that we've sinned. But he also saves us from the power of sin, from from the grip that covetousness has in our lives. And so as we wrap up this morning, let me just suggest two ways that Jesus does that, two ways that Jesus transforms us and gives us freedom from covetousness. First, he teaches us to be content, to be sure of God's love and provision. Covetousness is rooted in dissatisfaction. Greed grows in the soil of discontent. And so if you want to stop coveting the things that you don't have, well, it begins by learning to be content with what you do have. Now, the world will tell you that what you need in order to solve your coveting problem is a, is a better life. So if you, if you lost weight, got surgery, hit the gym, well, then you'd look the way that you wanted to look and you wouldn't have to covet anymore. If you work hard, get enough money, buy the things that other people have, then you won't covet them anymore. But you know that's not how it works, right? It's like drinking seawater. 
it might, it might slake your thirst for just a moment, but it's, it's only going to make it worse in the long run. Right? It's like an itch on your back. You can scratch at it like crazy. And for a second you think, oh, that is so much better. Right? But it comes back even worse than it was before. Because the, the nature of the human heart is not to be satisfied. Not with material possessions. Not with the things that we have. We're always looking for more. I was reminded this week of the, the anecdote of the, the billionaire Nelson Rockefeller. Right? The, one of the richest, if not the richest man on the planet at the time. And he was, he was asked once, look, just how much money is, is enough? And his response was simply, just a little more. Right? That's how it is. Again, remember Ahab, the king. Right? He had plenty. The problem wasn't that he didn't have enough. It was that he wanted this one, possible, this one particular thing, this one thing that he couldn't have. And so because he couldn't have it, he couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't eat. He had to have it. Remember in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the teacher there, who was himself a very wealthy man, says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And so Jesus comes to us and he frees us from this cycle of insanity. This idea that if you just got what you wanted, you wouldn't be covetous anymore. Right, through Jesus, God convinces us that he loves us. Right, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, the Apostle Paul asks a rhetorical question. And it's one of the most important questions we can learn to ask ourselves. It's a question that we should ask ourselves every time we feel a covetous desire flare up inside of us. He, he asks, speaking of God the Father, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? Do you see the logic? Paul's saying, look, if God the Father loves you this much, if he is so generous with you, so willing to go to any length to secure your eternal well-being, if he loves you so much that he didn't even withhold from you his beloved son, but gave him up on the cross for you, what good thing do you think he's withholding? What good thing is God looking at you and being like, yeah, no, not, I don't love you that much? Christian, do you realize your heavenly father could give you a bigger house in a better neighborhood? He could give you more stylish clothing. He could give you a van with better amenities for long road trips with the kids. He could give you a better looking body. He could give you health. He could give you a better education. He could give you a better whatever. He does not lack the power. He does not lack the resources. He does not lack the love. And so if your Heavenly Father chooses not to give you that thing that you want, you have to decide. It's either that He doesn't love you, it, maybe He doesn't know you want this, He's not paying attention, or it could be that He actually has a better plan for you. Your heart has to decide, is God withholding something good from me? Or does He know what's good perhaps better than I do? Christian, could it be that your Heavenly Father is actually frustrating your desires 
because he knows that if you were as beautiful, as rich, as comfortable, as healthy, as successful, as happily married as you so badly want to be, he knows that if you had those things, you would forget him, that you would, you would think you don't need him anymore. Could it be that it would be spiritually disastrous for you to get all of the things that you want? And so in his love for you, your heavenly father is saying, no, or not right now. But think about that thing that dissatisfies you most about your life right now. The thing where you're most likely to covet what someone else has. Could it be that your longing is actually spiritually suicidal? That what you so desperately want, even though you may not be able to see it, would actually be spiritually disastrous? That's actually God's love that's keeping you from it. Christian, if you are sure of God's love for you in Christ, then you can learn to be content. You can learn to rejoice in all that he's given you. You can learn to rejoice in the gift of Christ. Right? If you know that your father loves you, you can be content should he decide not to give you more. And so when you feel that discontent, that covetousness rise up in your heart, when you, when you realize that you're desiring something that God has given to someone else, can you remind yourself that God the Father loves you so much? He's not holding, withholding from you anything that would be good for you. Right? Can you turn that temptation to sin into an opportunity to praise and to trust your Father for what he has given you and even for what he hasn't? The second way Jesus transforms us and gives us freedom from covetousness is by giving us a hope, a hope of eternal life with him in a world made new, a, a, a world where we will receive from him heavenly treasure, as he puts it, a, a world where we, we live in his presence, satisfied with him. See, brothers and sisters, because Jesus died and rose for us, this life actually isn't all that we get. It's not even the best that we get. You, you are not limited to whatever pleasures and joys and successes you can accumulate here and now before it's your turn in the pine box. Instead, God has promised that he will make a new heavens and a new earth. Right? That's the, the kingdom of, of Christ and God that Paul is talking about back in Ephesians 5. Right? That's the eternal life that the rich young ruler comes to ask Jesus about. Right? In this world, we will be made perfect. There will be no sin. There will be no sickness, no futility or frustration. You will live forever with God in a world where every good desire of yours will be satisfied. Where you will have every good gift. And you'll be free to rejoice in what God has given to others without demanding it for yourself. See, brothers and sisters, God calls us not to covet and it's not because he intends to be miserly. It's not because he wants to be stingy with us and he would prefer we not point it out. He would prefer we not complain. Instead, he has plans to, to load our arms with something far better than our neighbor's house or our neighbor's car or our neighbor's spouse. He wants to give us nothing less than, than solid joys and lasting treasure. He wants to eradicate all covetousness from our hearts by satisfying us with his presence and his gifts forever. I think that leads us naturally then into our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because as we come to the table together, we are coming 
to commune, to have fellowship, to, to celebrate with our risen and ascended Lord. We're coming to find our identity and our satisfaction in being adopted into God's family through Christ. So as we take the bread, which symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us on the cross, as we take the cup that symbolizes the blood he shed for us on the cross, we are remembering the price that he paid. We are remembering the, the abandonment, the, the loss, and the poverty that he suffered so that we could be the, the recipients of every spiritual blessing. Here we are reminded that, that this is true wealth. That to have friendship with God, to have the, the hope of eternal life with him, is far better than anything the world might offer us. And so as we come to the table Let's take a moment to examine our lives. This is Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth. He, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's Supper is for all who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ, who have demonstrated that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized, who are connected to a church that believes the gospel. See, Jesus' invitation to come to his table is, is very gracious. Right? It's not a call that the very best of us come forward. It's not a reward for our obedience. It's a gracious invitation. This is held out to you not on the basis of your goodness, but Christ's goodness. And so, brothers and sisters, if you've had a bad week, if you've sinned, if you've been tempted and discouraged, if you've been covetous, if your faith feels frail, well, then come to the table. Here you find your faith strengthened and nourished by the Lord. Here you're reminded that despite your sin and failure, the Lord welcomes you into his presence. The Lord's Supper is a, a gracious gift, but it's not meant to be taken lightly. And so if you know yourself not to be a Christian, then this meal is not for you, at least not yet. So instead of coming forward, we would we'd encourage you to think, use the time to think about your need for a Savior. We would love nothing more than for at some point in the future you to celebrate at this table uh, with us because you've put your faith in Christ. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but your life is marked by some sin that you have no intention of turning from, such that if we, if we knew about it, we would, we would wonder if you really could be a Christian at all. If you insist on holding on to bitterness against your brother or sister in Christ, then, then what you need to do before you come to the table is what Christians do when they sin, and that is to repent, and that is to turn from your sin, confess it to the Lord, turn your back on it, and then, and only then, come to the Lord's table. This is a meal for sinners, but for repentant sinners. So I'm going to invite David to come up now and to, to lead us in a prayer of confession together. And then once we've done that, we will celebrate together.